Good morning, Highland. Happy Sunday. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to Philippians 2, 12 to 18. Let's turn to the Lord and ask His guidance today. Father God, we thank You for this day. We thank You for the opportunity to worship You, to study Your Word, to be encouraged to take the next step in our relationship with your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we earnestly pray for our nation that we love. We pray, Father, that racism, prejudice, which are real, would be a distant memory that we would all search our hearts Father, we readily recognize that this isn't a problem in one profession, but all. In one race, but maybe many. We readily recognize, Father, that we have not valued life made in the Imago Dei in your image as we ought. Father, we readily recognize that we have allowed the tint of skin color to divide, to bring hate and prejudice, racism, bigotry, and other evils. Father, forgive us and cleanse us and give us a much better tomorrow than today much better next week than this week. We pray, Father, that you would heal our land, that you would restore much better relationships than we've had in the past, that you would allow not only the pain that we've seen to be in a distant memory, but to remember why so many difficult things have happened and to rectify it in our land. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the heroes of the faith, certainly a top five for me, maybe number one, is William Wilberforce. He was born in 1753, went to be with the Lord in 1833. If you know anything about William Wilberforce, you know that he was born into an aristocratic family. And he was not a particularly industrious young man. In fact, he kind of relied upon the name of his father and his ancestry to open doors. He didn't work hard. He relied upon his father's name rather than his own work. He got into Cambridge, probably didn't deserve to get in. He studied there and he essentially was a party guy. And when he finally graduated, age 21, he ran for parliament. Unbelievably, with absolutely no ambition and no agenda, but because of his family name, He was elected to a seat in Parliament, which he would hold for well over four decades. 
Frankly, the first seven years were very forgettable. Just a politician who wasted people's time and people's money. But on Easter of his 28th year on earth, he heard the gospel afresh. He had grown up in a gospel-preaching home. He had grown up in a gospel-preaching church. But he heard the gospel afresh. It penetrated his heart. Some say he rededicated his life to Jesus. I think he prayed by faith and believed in Jesus, and it transformed his life. He wrote in his journal that God had laid on his life two things. He wanted the end of the unethical, immoral society in which he lived. It was the industrial revolution in the United Kingdom built on the backs of slavery, built on the backs of child labor, and immorality was rampant. He wanted that ended, and he was an abolitionist. He absolutely wanted the end of the slave trade. And so he naively believed if he could just educate Parliament on the evils around him, that they would readily outlaw things like slavery. And so he wrote his first abolitionist bill, and it was soundly defeated. It was defeated two to one. And he was disillusioned. He was kind of a Rambo Christian, going it alone, didn't have support. And when he tried to do something and it failed, he fell apart. <laughs> Understand that he had a childhood pastor. John Newton, you know Newton, right? He was a slave trader who came to Christ, who eventually wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So he had learned about God, but those lessons seemed distant. And having tried and failed, he thought, you know what, I'm going to go back to the party life. It's a little more enjoyable and it was at that time that another pastor, another John, called for him. You know this John as well. His name is John Wesley. Six days short of going home to glory. He was on his deathbed. John Wesley called William Wilberforce to his bed. And he encouraged him to spur himself on. To take the next step in his relationship with Jesus Christ, but not Rambo Christianity, but to surround himself with prayer warriors, Christ followers, those in Parliament that love the Lord. And so William Wilberforce began to work on a, a plethora of laws to support widows, to support orphans, to end slavery. And over and over again, those laws were defeated. Understand that his own health was waning. He was a very unhealthy man, little less than five feet tall. Curvature of the spine, almost blind. He was a very unhealthy man that sometimes couldn't get out of bed for sometimes days at a time. And yet he pressed on. And three days short of going home to glory, the Emancipation Bill 
was passed, outlawing slavery in the entire United Kingdom. And it was at that moment that God called William Wilberforce home to glory. And I love William Wilberforce because he was a man who was radically converted to Christ and then began to work out that salvation with fear and trembling, not as a Rambo Christian. He learned certainly early on he couldn't do it alone, and he surrounded himself with others, and together they pressed forward for God's glory. He's a Philippians 2, 12 to 18 Christ follower. Let me read the text to us. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out. It doesn't say work for. It says work out your own salvation, plural. Y'all get together, work together, work out that salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in y'all, plural, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be poured out. I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I may be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. As you and I come to this text, we know that it has been one of those texts that has been misunderstood. Whenever you have the words salvation and work, in the same sentence, people get a little bit confused, right? We get this idea of synergism, that God does his part and we do our part and we go hand in hand and together, God and us, we work for our salvation. Nothing could be further from the truth. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, when he who knew no sin became sin for us, that through him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus did it all. The sufficiency of the cross. He paid the penalty. He went to the cross. Our sins were placed on him. Death is the penalty for sin. He died. Then on the third day he rose again. He conquered death. He did it all. No synergism. No, us and God working together working for our salvation. That's not what the text says. It doesn't say that we work for our salvation. It says we work out the salvation, the salvation that God has given us through faith in Jesus, then as an act of response, as an act of worship, we begin to work that salvation out. We shine as light in a twisted and wicked, perverse generation. The text is really about sanctification, it's not in the text. That would be the Greek word hagiosmos, from hagios, holy. But the idea is having accepted Christ, having believed in Christ, having accepted the sufficiency of the atonement, the payment of Christ for ourselves. Now 
we do work hand in hand with God, with others, with our own effort, all three working together to make us more and more like Christ, that process of sanctification. The text is not about salvation. I can't work out my own salvation. (laughs) That is, work for my salvation. I can't do that. I certainly can't work for your salvation. Jesus did it all. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not of works, so none of us could boast. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You remember when Paul and Silas were in a prison, right? And the jailer is about to come to Christ. And the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And do you remember what Paul and Silas say? They say this, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's belief, it's faith, it's acceptance. It's not of works. But having believed in Christ, and if you haven't believed in Christ, won't you do so today? Believe that you're a sinner, we all are, and accept Jesus' death as a payment of your sin and ask him to grant you eternal life. And having received Christ, whether today or years ago, the text tells us as an act of response, as an act of worship, we work out that salvation with fear and crumbling. But it's a team sport. Yes, there is the individual work. I can't just say, hey, others got to do it or God's got to do it. No, I've got to put in the effort. But it's not Rambo Christianity. It's not grit my teeth. It's not check off one more box. It's not like that. I need others. That's what William Wilberforce discovered, isn't it? He wanted to change the world, empowered by God, but he kind of left God out of it, and he left others out of it. And then when it failed, he was ready to go back to the party life, and John Wesley called him to his deathbed and said, hey man, get back in the game, but this time get back in the game with others. The one another's. We need it in Christianity. Christ follower, do you have others in your life? One of my greatest fears, probably my greatest fear for the church in a COVID-19 world is that we can become too comfortable watching church at home. Now, I realize there are very good reasons some of you need to stay at home. I, I get that. I, I don't push against that. But if we're just staying at home because it's convenient we forget the 60 one another's in Scripture. We need one another. We need to engage in service in the church, outside the church. We need to stand arm in arm, shoulder in shoulder, as we work out as an act of worship, as an act of response to our salvation to become more and more like Jesus. So who do you have in your life that's asking you the hard questions. I have several accountability brothers. They don't ask me, Jeff, 
How are you shining as a star and a light in a wicked and perverse generation? They don't use that kind of language, but they might say, Jeff, what can I pray for you? Jeff, remember to live generously today. Jeff, I noticed this in your life. And we spur one another on in love and good deeds, recognizing that we do live in a perverse and wicked generation and that we need one another and we need the empowerment of God's Spirit. Who is coming before you in verse 4 and say, Do all things without grumbling and complaining? Or have has you shown as a light today? We need one another, but we also need God. Look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so when I think of this sanctification process, this process of working out, not for, but working out our salvation, I think it is me working hard. It is accountability, brothers and sisters, and, and 61 and others spurring us on, linking arms, serving together, helping each other take the next step in Jesus Christ. And then verse 13, it is God who works in and through us. Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be ye filled, plerao, in a present passive imperative, present, be filled with the Spirit daily, every day, iterative. Passive, God fills us. Imperative, it's a command. We need to ask for this empowerment daily as we work out that salvation with fear and trembling. How different this is than Rambo Christianity. Rambo Christianity kind of goes it alone, does it alone. It's me, myself, and I. I grit my teeth and I check off boxes every day. Gotta do the devotions. Probably need to say three prayers today. Gotta, and I check boxes off. And I get real legalistic. Maybe I got to memorize Philippians this week and Genesis next week and, and all 150 Psalms the week after that. And it's all about checking off boxes. But Christianity is not about checking off boxes. It's a relationship with the living God. It's empowerment by the Spirit of God. It's the brotherhood and the sisterhood linking arms, doing the one another's together as I put forth the effort. We need one another. The Spirit of God is, is the wind that works in and through us, helping us to take the next step in our relationship with God. As I think about the Spirit, which actually a Hebrew word for Spirit is wind, nephesh, uh, also means wind, I, I think of sailing. Now, I grew up in a family that did a little bit of sailing. We had a couple very, very low-end boats. One of them was a windsurfer we bought used. I think the number was 2,150. Yeah, that's me probably uh, doing a flip on the windsurfer in my dreams. But again, did you catch the number? 2,150. 
Today, there are one and a half million windsurfers in the United States, millions worldwide. There have been millions before that. And I had number 2,150. It's a cheap piece that belongs in the museum. It was worthless when we bought it, and it's pretty worthless today, but it was a lot of fun. But you need wind to push a windsurfer. And I remember going on my windsurfer. We were in a tropical area away from the the 48 unified states, and it was uh, out on some beautiful water, and I have very poor eyesight. I had poor eyesight as a child. I still have poor eyesight. If I take my glasses off, I, I can kind of see blobs, but I can't see anything specific. And so my then jokester uncle, who was at that time a bachelor, knowing that I windsurf without glasses so I can only see blobs, but you don't really need to see anything specific. He said, hey, go over to that sloop. It's really incredible. Go over there. You'll really like it. And there was almost no wind that day. So, you know, I'm barely putting along and my windsurfer over to this sloop. And I get over there and I'm about three or four feet from it, just close enough that I can kind of get a look at it. And I am speechless. I'm dying a thousand deaths. Because everyone on that boat is sans clothing. And I can hear my uncle howling in laughter across the, the water. And I am dying as a 16-year-old, a thousand deaths, thinking everybody believes I'm a peeping Tom or something creepy. And there's no wind. And I'm trying to get out of there. I mean, there is no wind. And with no wind, you can't go anywhere. And so I finally get on my belly and I'm, I'm trying to push my board, dragging the sail. Have you ever dragged a windsurfer sail on your belly? It doesn't go anywhere. And I'm dying a thousand deaths. And I learned that without wind, you go nowhere. And that's true in our Christian walk. Rambo Christianity is about going it alone, gritting your teeth, checking off boxes. But what I see in this text is the plurality of the saints, the one another's, linking arms, moving together, spurring one another on to take the next step. And I see in verse 13 the empowerment of God's spirit that allows us to go forward. So Christianity might look like this, the way God intends it. Maybe I'm a gossip and God's spirit works in my heart and my mind and, and I become convicted of the gossip. And so I go to a couple accountability brothers and I say, hey, will you help me guard my mouth? And so it's my effort. It's God's spirit empowering me as I daily pray for him to guard my mouth that what comes out of my mouth is wholesome. And I have some accountability brothers saying, how are you doing with that? Or maybe someone's struggling in a relationship or a marriage. And you need some accountability sisters or brothers to say, hey, are you doing this? Are you, are you trying that? Are you exhibiting this kind of attitude? And you're praying for God's empowerment in your marriage. And you're making the effort. Salvation is a work of God. Sanctification is a work of God through our efforts linking arms with others, spurring us on to take the next step in our relationship with Jesus. And it doesn't happen overnight. It's a lifelong process 
of becoming more and more like Christ. Frankly, we want things yesterday, right? God, give me patience, but I don't want to wait for it. That's the way you and I live. I mean, what are those universal words? Every child knows. You get in the car, you go on a 10-hour trip, and 20 minutes into the trip, what do the young kids say? Are we there yet? We're an impatient society, but it's not just kids. Have you ever been in a hotel? Maybe it has 10 floors, and you're on the bottom floor, and you, you poke that little red little ball that says up, and it turns on. And you wait, and you poke it again. And you wait, and you poke it again. It's already red, but you poke it, and you poke it, and you poke it, and you're kind of hoping that the elevator says to itself, oh my, Jeff is on the ground floor. He's in a hurry. I got to skip the other eight floors and get right down to him. That's how we often live. But that's not how sanctification works. Sanctification is a slow process of becoming more and more like Jesus. It's a lifelong process. It doesn't just happen. It's what happens over time as we work out that salvation with fear and trembling. You know what often happens? We come to Christ and we work on behavior modification. That's wonderful. But if we stop at behavior modification, you know what happens? We become legalists. A behavior modification transformation looks like this. I came to Jesus, so I'm going to start swearing less. I, I came to Jesus, so I'm going to lust a little bit less, a little less pornography. I came to Jesus, so I'm going to brag a little bit less, or I'll do it subtly on Facebook so nobody knows it's bragging. And we work on behavior modification, and that's great. We need there, but we can't stop there. Because it's more than just the transformation of my words. It's the transformation of my heart. I could learn what not to say and be just as vulgar and crude in my mind as I was the day before I came to Jesus. I could learn not to look at certain things, at least not really overtly. But I want to be Job who says, I make a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at another woman. And it becomes a heart issue. And Jesus says the man who looks lustfully has already committed adultery in his, in his heart. And so we go from behavior modification to internal transformation. And how do we do that? Well, it's certainly some hard work on our part. It's daily, hourly, asking God's Spirit to work in and through us. It's linking arms with sisters and brothers in Christ and spurring one another on and gently holding one another accountable and praying for one another and moving forward. It's not Rambo Christianity. That's what happened in William Wilberforce's life. When he came to Christ, age 28 at Easter, he was a Rambo guy. And his attempt failed. 
and he wanted to go back to being a party animal. And John Wesley called him over to his deathbed and spurred him on and told him to go back and to build accountability and prayer and to work as a team. By 1833, three days before he went home to glory, the Emancipation Bill, abolishing slavery in the United Kingdom, became law. And great will be his reward. There's many women, many men like those. Great will be their reward. So when I look at the text, I'm reminded of what Paul says at the very end. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a libation offering, a drink offering, upon the sacrifice of your faith, I'm glad I rejoice. And by the way, you should be glad and you should rejoice as well. Think about that conclusion. Paul has been in prison. It's AD 61. He's been in prison, first up north in Israel and then in Rome, separated by three months on the island of Malta. He's been in prison for four years, three months. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Now we know he's released. And we know he's re-arrested in AD 65 or 66. And he is martyred under Nero. We know all that. But Paul doesn't. And he says, you know, as I help you work out your salvation, as you help me take the next step in my relationship with Jesus Christ, as I am being poured out as a liquid libation offering, using language from the Old Testament temple system, saying, put me on the altar, God. He says, in the midst of that, I'm going to rejoice. And by the way, Highland, you ought to be rejoicing as well as God works out the salvation as an act of worship, the slow process of sanctification with your effort, with linking arms with others, and with the empowerment of the Spirit. Rejoice in the midst of the process. And great will be your reward. Let's pray. Father God, help us to be like a William Wilberforce. Or like a Mary, the mother of Jesus. Or a Ruth. Or a Sarah. Or a John Wesley. Or a John Newton. A Paul. Women, men who worked out as an act of worship, the salvation given through faith in the Redeemer, your Son, Jesus. Father, help us to understand that the sanctification process is individual effort, corporate striving together, empowered by the breath, the wind of your Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. Father, empower us. Help us to find accountability and help us to take the next step in our relationship with Jesus. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.